0: Happy Father's Day again to everyone. My observation of the younger dads and the ones to come is that uh the ones with young children you guys are doing a good job. You really are. I'm excited to see when when I was anticipating fatherhood and had a couple of young children and felt like the Lord was asking us to have a larger family, I be honest with you, I was terrified. I felt like I did not know what I was doing at all. Um, But, you know, God's faithful, and He does a lot of things in spite of us if our heart is connected to Him. I I wanted to talk to you this morning about an aspect of fatherhood, of God's fathering us and us fathering in the community, and I've titled it Game Changers. My buddy, Toby... Hooked me up with an article recently that has marked me, and I'm going to open using that article. It's really powerful. A number of years ago, in a game preserve in South Africa, they had a really big problem. They had a third of all of the white rhinos in the world in their game, in their preserve. There, it's really rare, albino rhinoceros. They started dying. And over a fairly short period of time, 39 of their white rhinos turned up dead. And they're scratching their head trying to figure out, what in the world is going on? This is a huge crisis. They go, well, it can't be poachers because they're not sawing the horn off and there's nothing missing off the animal. And so they were perplexed by what it might be. And they started to get clues What was happening? There was some young elephants in bands that were getting all riled up and going after tourists and scaring them. And so they put cameras around in the park to try to see what might be happening to the white rhinos. And they discovered that the young bull elephants were actually killing the white rhinos. Because what had happened in that park... There's only, you know, so many acres that they have. And they had gotten overpopulated a number of years before with elephants. And so they decided to ship. This was back in the day before they had the massive semis that would hold all kinds of weight. So the big father elephants were really heavy, as you might imagine. They didn't have any way to transport them. They shipped some of the mothers and the calves to other parks But the only option that they felt that they had with the the father of elephants was to put them down, to shoot them. So that had happened about 20 years before this was happening with the white rhinos. And when they figured that out, by this time, there was a way to bring in some of the bigger, older bull elephants and they transported a number of them back into the park. And lo and behold, when those larger bull elephants came back into the park, all the killing of the white rhino stopped. Because the dads got the young bucks, the young bulls that were out of control in line. Just their presence there changed the atmosphere in the preserve there. That's a powerful story that marks me, and that is the influence of fathering even in the animal world where the young elephants that were out of control, now they stopped acting crazy. They stopped going into tirades and they became calm because the older elephants, their presence there, they were modeling and they were probably kicking their butt a little bit um, and telling them, hey, that's not what you do here. We don't act like that. They set the right guardrails and boundaries and that solved their problems and none of the white rhinos were killed after that. That's a really powerful, powerful story. So, you guys, if I could just throw out at the beginning for you young fathers. I see you one there. You're getting ready to have your baby. I'm so happy for you guys, man. My heart is overflowing with happiness when I see babies coming forth and families. I'll just put out, I thought it was really complicated, and I couldn't figure it out, and I tried to read all the books that I could get on fathering, and then I was just more confused. I went to all of the um, conferences, and I got condemned because I wasn't. Having three hours of Bible study with my kids every day, and you know, I, I just couldn't—I couldn't measure up to to what they were putting out there at Promise Keepers and all that. And so, um, but looking back now, looking back, okay, on fathering, it's really not that difficult. So I want to encourage you guys, if you'll do just a few things. Let me just throw this out at the beginning, since this is Father's Day. If you will have a growing relationship with Jesus, that's real, and if you will connect. And be present with your children as they grow up, and if you will, enjoy your children, because it makes a lot of difference. Nobody perceives love unless they think you like them. So if it's just a training relationship where you're like, then that, that doesn't work." you have to win their heart. Here's Proverbs 23. It says, "My son, give me your heart, and then I'll impart my truth." to you and my teaching to you. That's the order that it goes in. So if you want to train and shape your children, you have to have their heart first. Otherwise, they're going to shut you off. So if you're absent or if you're doing things that are I call cutting heartstrings, what kind of things are those? If you're angry, if you're absent, if you're dismissive, if you roll your eyes at them, you're cutting heartstrings every time you do that. Every outburst of anger cuts heartstrings with them because now you're not safe. So if you will tend to the heart connection that you have with your children and you will have a growing relationship with Jesus, I can guarantee you he will help you to father your children well. And they will end up loving you and blessing you when you get older. Okay, that's free of charge, but that's, that's really good advice. That's really good advice. Okay. So 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 58, if you want to turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. We'll read this verse and then one in chapter 16, which makes me smile. 15, 58 says this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. So I want you to notice here. The word steadfast, the word immovable, and the word always abounding. Those words have within them consistency, right? Stability. This is what fathers do. This is what they bring. This is what the Father God brings into our life is that stability. And this is what we as earthly fathers bring into the lives of our children that we're wanting to disciple. And then flip over in my Bible just one page to chapter 16 and verse 13. This is Paul speaking to all the saints in Corinth, and he says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. So for you ladies, the command to you is act like men. Okay? I don't mean in a gender way, but in a strength way and in a stability way and in an immovable way and in a solid, rooted way. Because what gives your children stability is your own stability. I tell young married couples this all the time. The greatest possible thing that you can do for your children is to love your spouse passionately. Why? Because your kids draw security from that. We have adult children now, seven of them, and they gave us some cards a couple years back, 52 Reasons Why We Love You. I think it was for an anniversary or something which was yesterday, by the way, 39 years. Um, And our adult son, who's 20-something-year-old at that time, wrote on there, and this was repeated more than once, just just so you get a feel. Thank you for loving each other, even though you embarrassed us in public. (laughs) Because we, you know, we're kind of physical touch people, and so we would kiss and, of course, hold hands and that kind of stuff, and some people are uncomfortable, and that's okay. Um, But for my kids, they were a little embarrassed, but they're like, now, and here's here's what he said underneath that. He said, because I knew that if you loved each other like that, you would never leave me. Stability. The greatest thing you can do for the stability and security of your children is to love your spouse like crazy that's real so we need strong stable parenting for our children to grow up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord I want to talk just a minute about discipleship what a disciple is and I, I think this connects I hope it does to the whole game-changer thing and just the stability and being rooted solidly in the Lord. But Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 to 39, I want to revisit for just a minute because we use language and sometimes we don't um, have a good definition of what it means in our mind when we use it. And so I want to talk for a minute about discipleship and the way that Jesus presented it because it's, it's very striking to me and I think we lose it sometimes. This is all important for us, this is all important for um, our parenting. It's all important for our walk with the Lord to understand what discipleship is really all about. So, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, you have to understand that Matthew chapter 10 is a closed door session with just Jesus' disciples. It's not the crowds on the hill, it's just his disciples in a room, and he's talking to them. In verse 37, he says this to his disciples He who loves father or mother more than me, Is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Why am I talking about that? Because we are disciples of Jesus, we're followers of Jesus, and our stability begins with the fact that when we come in the gate, here's the thing I love about Jesus, he doesn't have any fine print in his contract. It's all large, bold caps. Don't, do, do you not see that in the Gospels? So Jesus is preaching, and it says a couple of different times, there's a massive group of people following him. This is Luke chapter 14. Multitudes were following him. So what does he do? He gets up there and he preaches a sermon. Hey, um, if you really think you're going to follow me, you you need to consider, like, not embarrassing yourself because you need to count the cost before you come. This isn't the fine print that comes back to bite you later. This is on the jump street when you come in at the start. Here's the bold print. Like, you need to count the cost. If you start building a tower and then find out you don't have enough, then you're going to be humiliated. If you're a king and you're going to war, you better make sure if the number of people that you have, you're going to be able to re- prevail in war, or you're going to lose, and you're going to lose your army. Why would Jesus do that when there are the multitudes? That's like the opposite of common sense, because He's not fishing for anybody. He's fishing for those that are going to be all in. So here's the point. He, so He gets down to the end of that passage in Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says, So then, anyone who wants to follow Me, you have to give up everything that you possess. ever read that in the Bible? If you want to follow me, you have to give up everything that you possess. That's Luke 14, That'll thin him out, Lord. That'll thin him out because he's wanting to see why do you want him and why are you being connected with him? Is it because of what you see in him or is it because of what you perceive that he can do for you? That's a huge distinction, huge. I like this quote by Leon Morris, one of my favorite commentators. He says, The man who comes to him must renounce all that he has. These words condemn all half-heartedness. Jesus is not, of course, discouraging discipleship. He's warning against an ill-considered, faint-hearted attachment in order that men may know the real thing. He wants men to count the cost and reckon all loss for his sake. So that they can enter the exhilaration of full blooded discipleship. I like that. This is where the exciting, exhilarating part of following Jesus comes in when you're all in. Being in with Jesus is not like dieting. How many have ever dieted? How many know there's a new diet book that comes out about every month? You know why? Because people go, I want the easy pill. Just give me that. If I just take this one pill or I take this pill twice a day, then I'm going to lose 50 pounds by the end of two months. And so, oh, it didn't work. Or there's a rigorous um, regimen of what you can eat. And then people go, I I don't want to do that. I like pizza too much. I like mac and cheese too much. I like ribs too much. Now I'm hurting myself. Here's the, here's the reality, and this, is, this was my reality after I have a heart surgery, okay? When I'm leaving the hospital, they say to me, okay, you're fixed now. The doctor says to me, you've, went, you've gone from 10% blood flow to 100%. He said, so after you recover from the surgery, which took a little while, he said, you should be feeling better. But they told us when we were getting ready to leave, you're good for 10 years. If you keep living the way that you've been living, you'll be back in the same shape in 10 years. My wife and I looked at each other, and especially her, not going to do that. We're not going to do that. I'm not afraid of dying at all. I look forward to it, actually, with great joy. But I want to finish my course. And so, Lord, I'm going to cooperate with you the best I can. Here's the deal. Radically change my diet. It's not congratulations to me. It's mostly congratulations to my wife because she prepares the food and all that. But that's real. That's real. No, she, she, she's, she's amazing. Um, But if you have a plan B, it it never works. If you you have a plan B like, let's try this, no. See, because I love dairy, and two cardiologists told me that dairy fat is the absolute worst for you. And I'm like, Briar's chocolate ice cream? I'm going to give that up? For real? (laughs) Mac and cheese. Pizza. I even love milk. Butter. I could take a stick of butter and bite it. (laughs) I'm not kidding. On my rice, you can ask my wife, when we had rice, I would cut off that much butter and put it in there. It would be yellow. I loved it. Here's the thing. If you have options, then you're going to take them. When the going gets tough and you see those ribs and you see that mac and cheese, I love that stuff, then you're going to play. If you play with dieting, then you'll always be on it. I know people that do a new diet at least once a year, maybe more often. Oh, and I don't know how they keep being excited about it because it doesn't ever work. But, like, this new one is the magic bullet. This new one is really going to work, Right? Come on, you guys. Anybody, anybody, anybody ever tried? You You have to make a decision. There is no plan B. That's what Jesus says about following him. It only works if there's no plan B. There's no plan B. Everything is on the table. Jesus, my stuff is yours. If you're the rich young ruler, it's not good enough just to have a heart that's hungry for Jesus. That's not even good enough. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knew he was sincere. And the Bible said that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then Jesus spoke the truth to him like a surgeon would and said, I know you're sincere. But the idol that is in your heart right now has to come out or you'll never be successful following me. So I want you, imagine saying this to somebody, I want you to give, sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and then come follow me and you'll have eternal life. Did Jesus speak the truth? Did Jesus speak the truth in love? And how did that make the rich young ruler feel? He went away grieving. He went away grieving. Sometimes the truth spoken in love doesn't always make us feel good. But it's always good for us. So discipleship, the DNA of disciples. Can can I just say something? I found this out in... In school in Maranatha because I asked a question in one of my classes. Like, do you believe that discipleship is actually just a higher level of Christianity? Whereas you start out and you're saved, and then you work up and you get stuff broken off of your life, and then you, you reach the level where you get the gold star and you become a disciple? And a lot of them believe that. And I'm like, No, actually, you're not even a Christian if you're not a disciple. Do you know that's the most common title for Christians by far in the New Testament? Over 260 times. Disciple. What does disciple mean? That means you're a follower and you're all in. So that means that you surrender your lives, your possessions to Jesus, and you subjugate every relationship and every pursuit to Jesus. That's what discipleship starts at. That's the doorway to come in to be a disciple. Are you a disciple? Can, can I tell you what I believe with all of my heart? This is one of the reasons why the church world as a whole in the West is so weak and anemic is because there are a lot of people in there believing that they're saved because we lied to them and told them if they would come down and pray a prayer and put their name on a card, then they were saved. And they're not even saved. And that breaks my heart, but that's true. That's not the way that Jesus presented himself. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that when a man found it for joy, he went away and sold everything that he had in order to buy that field. It doesn't matter what it costs me. I've got to have it. That's salvation. It's seeing the the prize and the treasure of who Jesus is and selling all. And that is what discipleship is about. What is the mission of the church? Matthew 28 verse 18, "All authority is given to me in heaven and earth, go, therefore and get decisions and have as many people as you can pray the sinner's prayer. Because after all, you want as many people as you can get in the building. And Jesus was so counterintuitive that Jesus would never fit in. He would never be asked to speak at a church growth convention, never. Never, because every time he got a big crowd, he did something crazy to try to sift out those who were really about him, and if you weren't, John chapter 6, right? You don't say to Jews, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You you don't do that. You don't talk about cannibalism to Jews. That's not okay. That's a huge deal for them. So, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you You can't be my disciple. You have no life in you. And then the disciples are like, no, 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 behind the stage. You know, they're going, no, 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 no. And then they all left, and the disciples are like, looking like they came up out of a blown-up building with black all over their face, like, what what, what was that? And Jesus says to them, this is the security of Jesus and his Father. so amazing. This is so contrary to ministers. I put myself in that category. Like, we're so afraid of what's going to happen. Are people going to get offended? He's like, no, totally. If they're going to get offended, let them go. Every plant that my heavenly Father doesn't plant is going to get uprooted anyway, so why should I try to keep it? That's Jesus. He said that. Then he turns to his disciples. They're so upset, and he says, do you want to leave too? (laughs) Can you imagine that? Like, that is ultimate security in your father, isn't it? Jesus was the most secure person who's ever lived in the love, in the purposes, and in the plans of his father. The most secure by far. The way that he totally entrusted everything to the father, he was not in any way concerned about how it was going to play out because he knew father had it. So he's like, "Eh, if you guys want to leave, that's cool. Like, if, if the Heavenly Father hasn't opened your eyes to see who I really am, then we really want to go ahead and get this done earlier rather than later because it's going to get ugly as the time goes on. Because crucifixion doesn't really feel that good. And if you want to follow me, like, you have to take up your cross every day. This is what discipleship is. You trade everything for Him. And when we get him and we've traded everything for him and we've already decisively made that decision that he's worth every single thing that I've got or want or long for or hunger for or dream about. He's worth everything. And I'll gladly get rid of everything I've got to have him. That's the beginning of real life. That's the beginning of really falling. That's where the adventure really begins. So then when he asks you to do crazy things, see, saying no, Lord, like that's a contradiction in terms. So in our case, for our children, and Dave, it's not really 750-something kids we have. It's only seven. But for us, we had two, and we were good in our heart. And and, and please understand me. You you need to hear this. Okay, I'm not saying that everybody should have huge families. I don't believe that. But for us, the Lord gave us a mandate on lots of different levels. But here's the thing: He knows the end from the beginning. And when you say yes to the one that you've already given up everything for, it's really easy. It's really it's it's so much easier. I'm not saying it's easy. I had a huge wrestle with that, trust me. My wife, like, guys, I think you can say amen to this much. Right? Your wife is usually ahead of the game and what she's perceiving that the Lord's telling you to do. And then I, I'm, I'm the guy who's thinking and analyzing it in my brain going, that's not going to work, like budget. Um, Lord, I can't even support my two babies. We're eating at the Bent and Dent now. This is literally true. We literally shopped at the Bent and Dent when we had our two And the Lord's like, he's going to change the whole game now. And I'm like, really? The most money I've ever made in my life is $15,000 a year. And you're telling us you want us to have a bigger family. Like, this doesn't even make any sense. Biggest wrestle of my life. I would say it is the biggest. I agonized in my soul. I'm going to tell this story for some of you younger guys that struggle with this. I agonized in my soul. I, every day when I got up, that was right in front of my face. Like, that's all God wanted to talk about. I'm like, seriously? Can we talk about the Bible or something? Can, can, can we talk about one of your miracles? Can we talk about some interesting text of Scripture? He's like, no, this is what I want to talk about. I'm like, Lord, I, I can't do that. Like, my heart, that, that chapter's already closed. I can't do that. And he, in his persistent, loving, fatherly, wise, amazing way, he just kept after me. And I was in agony in my soul for months. And I finally said, and this was a turning point. And so, for you guys who've been here for a while and you've heard this story, I, I think this might be for somebody, okay? I said, Lord... I can't do this, I've already shut my heart." And I told him, when I cried, I said, I don't want to harden my heart against you, but I can't do this. I said, would you make me want to do what you want me to do? That was the game changer. When I prayed that, he started changing my heart miraculously. He said, you've already given everything, so now I've got free access to come and change. He began to change my heart. And it was, I don't know how many months it was, three or six months, my heart had completely flipped around. I was like, is this really me? Am I really saying let's go get this done so that we can have more children? Which one of my five children, after that moment, would I wish that I did not have? My son, Landon, was born after we made that decision. (laughs) He was probably our hardest child. (laughs) It's real. But we had already released it. You know... It's really OK. Th- this is what disciples say, like if you take up your cross every day, what does it matter what the particular application is? If you actually are doing that, what does it matter? Like if it's hard with your kids, it's, uh, it's OK. It's hard. It's hard. I get that. And, and I feel you guys um, Talked to a dear friend recently. It's just they're having a hard time. Young children, it's hard. Sometimes it's just hard, especially when you have some that are just pistols. You know, we, we had a couple in a row like that, and they actually ganged up on us, you know. <laughs> there was two, two boys in a row, and they were like, Phew! they were gunslingers. And so, you know, I, I tell the, tr- the story that for a year and a half during that time when they were little, this is real. Half of the days that I came home from work, my wife was crying. It was so hard. But which one of those boys would I wish that I didn't have? Landon, had bunches of symptoms of autism um, when he was young. You know what happened? When he gave his heart to Jesus at six years old, the Lord began to reverse it. This is real. You can ask my wife. This is real. He had a lot of symptoms of autism, and we were like, if we took him in, he would totally be 100% diagnosed as autistic, no doubt. When he gave his life, his little heart to Jesus, he's like, "I want Jesus." Yes. When he gave his little life to Jesus, the Lord came in and started reversing all those autistic tendencies. That's real. He he couldn't. If if somebody at the grocery store said hi to him, the bag man, you know, the boomer like me, that's bagging groceries, he would freak out and scream. There's times where Diane had to walk out of the store and leave two full carts of food there because he was just hysterical and couldn't get him to stop. If somebody came to our door and she's holding him and opened the door, hey, little fella, shouldn't have said that, it's over. Like, it's over. He's, he's gone for 20 minutes in hysterics. That's the kind of thing. He would sit and a rock incessantly. I'm, I'm saying this to the glory of God and telling you that surrendering your life is not a loss. It's a win. You just can't see it in the short term. You got the treasure. You can never lose the treasure. You will lose the hardship. But you won't lose the treasure. That's what you have to understand about real discipleship. When we try to hold on to things and go, God, I'll give you these four things, but not these. He's like, no, that's no deal no deal he would rock he wore out two of our rocking chairs in our house he would rock on his bed he would bang his head on his pillow at night for a long time and the other kids are like "Landon, please stop that driving us crazy sit in the rocking chair I'm not kidding that was every day it was hard The Lord began to reverse that when he went to Bible college. He was the worship leader of their whole school. Now he's in England evangelizing Muslims and has a master's degree in Muslim studies. That's not because we're awesome parents at all. That's because God had a plan. And God said, even though you can't figure it out financially... Even though it doesn't make sense for what it looks like, like, this boy's going to be institutionalized. None of it made sense from the outward. I'm trying to start a business, and I can't, I can't make it go. It's a fail. And so I'm like, how are we going to pay for these kids? What's going to happen when they get older? Good grief. What am I going to do when they need braces? And all of our kids needed braces. What are the odds of that? Of seven of your kids, all of them need braces, and two of them had them twice. So I paid for nine sets of braces on my seven kids because two of them had to have appliances in their mouth to get their mouths to where they could actually take them. What are the odds of that? You you know what the Lord said? If, if If you give it all, if you're my disciple, you lay that down. And you trust me that I've got the plan, and I will take care of all of the details. Could I figure that out? Oh, no way. Did he give me the ability to pay for the braces? Yes. Astonishingly. And college? Yes, astonishingly. It's a miracle. I could never have figured that out. Here's the thing. Surrendering your life to Jesus Everything, releasing it to him is always a win and never a loss. That's real. It's always a win. It's never a loss. One of my heroes, CT Stud, was a sports hero in England. He was a cricket star. Everybody knew his name. He and his brothers were like some of the best athletes in the, in the nation. He went to Eton College there, very prominent, attached to Cambridge and Oxford, star athletes. His father was extremely wealthy. He had everything. And his father, when his father died, left him, even way back in the day, the equivalent of multi-millions of dollars. And Jesus got a hold of his heart. He was riding on a train one day, and he read a tract that was written by an atheist. I didn't know atheists put out tracts, but they do, evidently. He read the tract, and the tract said this, If I believed, as millions say that they do, that the knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ in this life affected." eternity forever, then my life would be radically different. I would every day Think of how I could sow my life and spend it for eternity, knowing that everlasting souls all around me would depend on whether or not I would speak the words of life or not. I would not spare any expense or any hardship. I would give myself absolutely and completely to the cause of spreading the truth and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ all of my life. And Stud read that, and he goes, I'm a dang hypocrite. Because I say I believe that, and I don't sacrifice anything for Jesus and for eternity. And so it affected him in such a deep way that he literally gave away every cent of his inheritance. And he went and lived in the remote areas of China and Africa, and spent his life evangelizing those who had never heard the gospel. That's an amazing story. I'm not saying that's God's call for everybody. I'm saying that's the way that disciples respond to the Lord. I want to submit to you that if we view ourselves rightly as disciples of Jesus, it cures a thousand little things in our life that really bother us. It makes other things seem really small. Like, no, you've already cashed in those chips. Those chips are, no, 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 you, you can't go back for them. Like, you already traded. You traded for the treasure, right? You traded for that one pearl that you had to have. You saw it and you go, I saw everything that I got for this. So that means you traded everything. So then you don't chafe about the little things so much. Right? This cures a thousand evils if we actually view ourselves as being real disciples of Jesus moving forward. Cures a lot. This is a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many have ever heard of Bonhoeffer's book called Call to Discipleship? It's ranked the 13th most influential writing in Christian history. Pretty famous book. If you haven't read it, here's how it starts out. (laughs) I like a guy who comes straight to the point. If you want to make me crazy, beat around the bush and don't tell me what you mean. That will make me go insane. I just want you to come and tell me straight. You can hurt my feelings, but just tell me what you mean. Okay. Sorry. That's just a little. Here's how the book starts. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods for. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life there is. I believe it would be so helpful and healthy for the church of Jesus Christ for us to view ourselves again as being disciples of Jesus. I feel like there's a lot of turmoil, I mean, since all of this stuff with with Trump and with the prophecies, especially in charismatic circles, there's a lot of unsettledness and a lot of um, distress that I've, just people that I've known, I just feel unsettled, unrooted. And I think this is part of the reason. Here's the reality. If we've really given our life and laid everything down, What else do you have to lose? What fear do you have of loss? I would submit to you that real disciples don't fear loss. They've already crossed that bridge and lost everything for his sake. You, you can't take what I've already given. So I'm not worried that my, I'm going to lose my house or my car. I've I've already surrendered all that to Jesus. It's where real life begins and it's real freedom. So I started on Matthew twenty eight about ten minutes ago, and I never finished getting to the point that I wanted to. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make. Make what. Make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? Oh, that's somebody that said the sinner's prayer. No, it's not. It's somebody that understands that you're trading everything you've got for everything that he's got. You ever hear the story of the guy who's a rock climber, and he's up on a high ledge, and he slips, and he's starting to slide down a steep incline, and he grabs little branch about five feet below the, the top, and he's holding to it, and down below him is like 500 feet drop. He's holding to it, and he starts saying, "Is there anybody up there? Is there anybody up there?" And he hears a voice go back and says, "Yes, I'm here. Can you help me to get back up? I slip down and I'm holding on to this one root. I said, can you help me? Who is it? I said, I'm Jesus. And yes, I can help you, but you have to let go of the root first. Is there anyone else up there? (laughs) How many feel white knuckles right now? We do that with our life, don't we? We get white knuckles. We're holding on to the thing that we're so afraid of losing. And Jesus is saying, it's okay. You already gave that up in the deal we made. Don't worry about it. I've got it. Release it to me. Release it to me and trust me. I'm going to take care of you. This way, it's so freeing not to have to conduct my life based on worrying about what I'm going to lose and what might slip away from me that I really wanted. Because real discipleship is the trade that you make at the beginning when you come through the door. It's the trade that you make. When he says everything, you don't take out your wallet and start counting. He goes, don't count it, the wallet too. Everything. This is why believers like C.T. Studd and others, you know, Studd came back. They asked him to come back and speak at Cambridge to the students there about missions. It's in the 1880s, I think. He came back. And when he was back, he saw a plaque. So he'd been in China. And when he was back, he saw a, um, a little advertisement that had a picture of African natives on there, you know, Had like a bone, you know, through the nose kind of thing. And it said on there, cannibals want missionaries. And Stud was like, that's me. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going next. I'm done with China. Now I'm going to Africa to spend my days going after the cannibals, bless God. Because when you've given it all up, there's such freedom in that, there's such freedom. There's such freedom. He Stud has this book that's I got years ago. It's a little book like this, and it's called Chocolate Soldiers. And Stud said most Christians that I know are like chocolate soldiers. They're as sweet as they can be, and they look pretty, but when they get near the fire, they melt. Here was his motto. Some people want to live. This is Stud's motto now. Some people want to live within the sound of church and chapel bells. But me, I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I'm not saying you're called or I'm called to mission. Here's what I'm saying. That's what a disciple says. That's what a disciple says. If Jesus had... How many disciples does it take to change the world? Not very many. Not very many. Peter, when you're old, they're going to take you and they're going to do to you what you don't want them to do, which he understood as being a reference to him being martyred, which was true. But Lord, what about him? And Jesus answers in effect What about him? You've already made the trade, right? So what do you care? It's fair because you got the treasure, which is me. It's not comparison. God has his journey for each of us. Jesus isn't, he doesn't do the fair thing. He, here's, here's, he's already given us extravagant mercy and grace. He's like, you already agreed that my life, your life is mine. So. I can do what I wish with it, right? right? Are, you, are you okay with that? You follow where I'm going? This simplifies so many things in our life, and it makes things that seem like they would be huge sacrifice actually not sacrifice because I've already got the treasure. I already agreed to give that up. Like, that's not mine. This is how you actually have the mindset that you're a steward and not an owner, Look, we struggle with this. Let's admit it. Let's admit it, okay? We're Americans. We struggle with this. We struggle with our ownership of things. We feel like we're entitled to things, and we feel like the stuff that's ours is ours, and we don't want to lose anything. And Jesus is like, no, you, you, you actually already made that deal. What if we lived like disciples where we had actually traded everything already? It's gone. And released it. And trust the goodness of the heart of the God who called him, who called us to himself when we weren't looking for him, when we were his enemies, when the reality of my life is, when Jesus drew me to himself, this is really true. I loved a candy bar more than I loved God. I had no thoughts of God in my head. I had no affection. I didn't have any affection for God. I didn't even know who he was. That God who drew me to Himself, He's already given me extreme mercy. Why is it a big deal if He asks for something that's already His? Right, you already lost that in the poker game. That's not yours. But now you're crying about because you don't. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. You got the treasure. He is the treasure. When we leave this life, we're going to get our heart's desire. That's what I say all the time. When when I leave this life, like, I I love you all dearly. I really, really do love you. But don't cry for me. (laughs) I'm going to have my heart's desire, and I'm not even going to remember your name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be enamored with the Son of God and be a pillar in His temple forever, standing in the immediate presence of the Son of God and the beauty and the glory of God. He says that our reward is that we're going to be glorified with Him. Why would I think about you? My mind's going to be somewhere else, guaranteed. I do love you, though, I really do. That's real. I love you guys. You're an expression of Jesus to me in my life. And I love you. So here's, here's my message. Real discipleship cures weak Christianity. Real discipleship cures living in fear of loss. Real discipleship cures playing with the world, the flesh, and the devil. One of my favorite quotes of C.S. Lewis. I didn't bring it with me. I love it. He says, we are enamored with drink and sex and ambition. We're like a little child who's playing in the alley with making mud pies in the puddle, and we don't know that God has offered us a lavish vacation on the ocean. we are far too easily pleased. That's a powerful quote. He said, eternal glory is offered to us. And we want to hold on to our mud pies. Real discipleship cures. It makes us into soldiers. It makes us strong and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. It helps to cure us from our tendency to cry about everything that's hard. And, and, and I get it. We should show compassion. Please, please hear my heart. I'm not belittling that. I've gone through a few things in my life as well. And I know it's hard. And I, know, and I appreciate when my brothers and sisters rally around me. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is perspective. We've already traded all those things. It makes it so much easier to obey the master with whatever he tells us to do when we know we've already made that train. Amen. I want you to bow your heads with me. If you want to come down to the altar, you're welcome to. If you want to just bow at your seat, you're welcome to do that. I just want us to have an honest conversation with the Lord about whether we understand the deal that we made when we said that He was our Lord and we bought the treasure in the field. Father, I pray that You would help us to recognize Your Lordship in a greater way And that we would not chafe at things that you ask us to do. But that we would respond with a full heart of obedience, of love. Whenever you ask us to do anything. And that we would live our lives with our hands wide open. Not holding on to anything, even the things most precious to us. Like our families. That we would release everything to you, trusting in you that you have it and that you are working all things together for our good and for your glory. And I pray, Father, that moving forward with the vision that you have for us individually and as a body, that we would live and navigate it in such a way that you can look upon us and go, Those are my disciples. Lord, we say yes to whatever you ask us to do. We say yes. There is a yes in our hearts. We say yes. Lord, we re-acknowledge before you that everything that you have entrusted us with actually belongs to you. And we release our hold on it. We don't curl our little fingers around it in ownership again anymore. We release it to you and trust in your good heart for us. And Lord, we say yes to whatever you would ask us to do, whatever, that, even if that requires sacrifice or even if it doesn't really make sense or we can't quite figure it out. We still release our right to control our lives and our stuff because we've already given all of that to you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as a people, that you would strengthen us to be able to be strong and to endure hard things, to trust in you even through the tears, to cling to you no matter what, and to always be immovable and always rooted and grounded and abounding in the work of the Lord. Lead us on. Lead us on in what you have for us. We've already said the yes to you. Whatever you want is what we want to give you. This is not about us anymore. This is about you. Father, would you do in us as a people, not just individually, but as a people, as a community, I know in my heart that you want to come into this place and inhabit it in power and in glory. I know that you want to do that, and that is your intention. Lord, would you help us to rightly align with you in that process so that you can have your way and that you can be supremely exalted in this place. Lord, above everything else, we want you to be exalted. We want you to be the focus. We want your name to be celebrated and to be hallowed. We want your fame and your glory to come to you in greater measure. We want you to be the one that receives glory. We want you to be the one that praise and thanksgiving go to. We want you to be seen in your beauty, in your glory, in your holiness, in your majesty. Would you help us to align with you and your purposes?